The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Uh, it's good to be here this morning. We thank the Lord for many blessings that he's given us, and it's come now time to preach from the Word of God. So let's take our Bibles and open them to Ephesians chapter 6. Last Sunday it was a, a wonderful privilege to preach the Christmas message and to talk about the glorious millennial kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I've told you that one of the things that I pray for almost on a daily basis is that Christ would begin his kingdom. And that's a thing that the Lord told us that we should pray for. In the model prayer, he said, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. The Lord taught us to pray for his kingdom. Now, I don't pray that all of that prayer as a regular practice, but I do like to include that one particular part about the coming of Christ's kingdom because I know that when Christ comes to rule upon the earth, his, his goodness will rule the entire world. Uh, we won't have to deal with sin and the devil any longer. And it's not just that uh, I won't have to deal with the wickedness of the world. I also won't have to deal with the wickedness of my own heart. And that is a very troubling thing. Uh, when we get to the millennial kingdom, those that are, of us that are saved now, and Christ brings us into the millennium, we'll rule and reign with him in our glorified bodies, and there won't be any more sin. And if you're a Christian, I'm, I'm sure that you can very much appreciate that because you know that there is no more oppressive weight on you than your own sin. The Apostle Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And Paul knew the answer to that question. Uh, the only one who can deliver us from our sins is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we receive those glorified bodies, sin is defeated forever in us. But as we were talking about the kingdom last week, there will be people living in the kingdom that are not in their glorified bodies, and they're still living in the natural body. They're in the kingdom, but they're living with a, with a sinful nature. And so for 1,000 years, sin is going to be uh, oppressed or suppressed, I should say, in that kingdom as Christ rules with an iron fist. Children that are born during the millennial kingdom will still have their sinful nature, and uh, I don't believe that they will come to Christ during that time, and that causes a very big problem for the sinless world that's going to come later. And so God will have to deal with that, and he'll do it by bringing about the destruction not only of Satan, but also those who follow him. Now, if you'll look at our text this morning in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, we're familiar with the passage now. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places." Now, whether you are religious or non-religious, whether you are a theologian, a philosopher, a scientist, or, or just an average worker at Kmart or Walmart, you know that this world is going to end. All of us know that this world was going to meet 
its destruction. We, we've known that since we were children because those are things that we were taught in our science classes. We, we know that uh, the, the stars can't burn forever. We know that the sun is not going to shine forever. Uh, someday, all fuel is going to be expended and the sun will go out and we were told when that happens, the earth is going to become a popsicle. We know... Material things are not going to last forever, but we also don't believe this. We do not believe that the end is going to come in our lifetime. Now, scientists have set that date for way off in the future sometime, though they would say millions and billions of years perhaps for all of that to happen, for the energy of the universe to wind down and to burn out. And they say, well, it's not going to happen suddenly. It's not going to happen right away. You don't have to worry about it in your lifetime because the end of the world is going to be a natural thing. But the Bible does not teach that the end of this world is going to be a natural thing. It's going to be a supernatural thing that brings the end to this planet. The Bible puts no chance at this world ending without the Creator doing it. Natural laws are not going to destroy this earth. Climate change is not going to destroy the planet. Nuclear war is not going to destroy this planet. And in Colossians chapter 1... The Apostle Paul wrote, he's writing about Christ, and he says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 3 says that Christ upholds the world by his power. And what the Bible never does, it never makes a reference to Mother Nature. There is only one person who keeps this universe going, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ by His power. And so if He were to withdraw His power for even one hour, if He were to shut down the divine power grid for just a few minutes, this entire universe would collapse into a heap of rubble. And when the world ends, it's not going to be because the sun burned out. And no one's going to sit around and watch year after year until the sun slowly burns itself out and peters out and each year it becomes a little bit colder. No, it's going to be exactly what God said in Second Peter 3 and verse number 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. That means a surprising thing in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And so the Bible is teaching us that the destruction of the world will come suddenly. At once, God is going to stop it. And when the millennial kingdom comes to this earth, that is the signal that the earth has 1,000 years to go before its destruction. And then God is going to bring an end to this world as we know it. He'll shut it down. He'll destroy it completely. And then the Word of God says that He will create a new heaven and a new earth. But you remember, there's still a matter that has to be dealt with. There's a troublemaker who's not yet met his final end. For 1,000 years, he's in the abyss. For 1,000 years of Christ's perfect kingdom, he's chained and awaiting his final destruction. Well, today, I'd like to talk to you about the end of Satan. And his end corresponds with the end of the world, because when God recreates this world, there's not going to be uh, a person called Satan. In fact, 
the new world that he's going to create will be created with no changeable beings. There's no one that could ever turn into Satan as Lucifer did. God will allow no defections. There'll be no pride in his kingdom, no evil, no sin. Nothing that has anything to do with sin is going to enter into the hearts of those who inhabit his new world. And so in short, sin is going to be gone forever. And that's the thing that I pray for every day. That's what I want. And when you pray for Christ's kingdom to come, that is actually the crux of the matter. You are asking for God to set in motion the things that will bring an end to this world as we know it, and sin will be gone forever. Now, the last time we looked at the millennial kingdom... And I'd like to return to those scriptures for just a few minutes to set the stage for what comes next. So if you'll take your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 20. We can see once again the removal of Satan uh, for the duration of the kingdom of our Lord Savior Jesus Christ. Now Satan is an instigator, he is a facilitator of sin, he's a destroyer, and as long as Satan is around, he will stir up trouble and so the opening verses of chapter 20 tell us that he has to be removed from this earth for the time of the kingdom. Now with Satan gone, all nations will worship God. All nations will flow into the city of Jerusalem and they'll worship the king of kings who sits on the throne. And Christ will rule from a new magnificent temple that's created there when uh, the Mount of Olives is split in two, and the valley is filled between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount as it is now, and there on that huge platform, a new millennial temple will be built. Now, if you know about the Old Testament, and you know about the monotheism of Israel, you know that Israel's temple was very much unlike the heathen temples. In God's temple, in Israel's temple, there was no image of God. That made it very different from heathen temples. They had their idols. But God was very strict about that. He allowed no idols. And that's the thing that distinguished Israel's temple from all the other temples of heathen nations. Now, God was actually in his temple. He did have a presence there. But he wasn't in, uh, uh, in, in, an, in an idol. And when we come to the millennial kingdom, Christ is going to be there in his living, breathing presence. He is the express image of God, and he will be there to rule in perfect righteousness. And so for the first time since the fall of Adam, the world will see again what it's like when God rules and Satan is absent. Now, sin is the cause of the world's misery, and when there is no uh, sin, there is no misery, there is no pain, there is no disease. All those things are eliminated, and so for 1,000 years, death, even to a certain extent, is postponed and diminished. And so the millennial kingdom is an unprecedented time of peace and prosperity, of perfect righteousness and of justice, and it's attributable the two very important factors, the first being the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the second being the absence of Satan. But I do want to remind you again that among the many of this world's inhabitants, uh, there are people that aren't Christians. They're ruled by Christ, but they are unconverted. They're forced to live under the rule of a king that they don't truly love. Now, evil is suppressed. But that doesn't stop them. Uh, they, don't, they don't stop their sin willingly, and their hearts are never changed. And that's why the Bible says that what Christ must do in that kingdom is to rule with a rod of iron. Christians don't need to be ruled with a rod of iron. We serve the Lord because we love him. 
But people that don't know him have to be made to serve him, and that's the difference. And that's one of the reasons why that I know the millennial kingdom is not going to be a time of great revival. Uh, Not millions upon millions of people are going to come to Christ, but rather I think that in the second, third, fourth, fifth generations of those who are born in the millennial kingdom, they'll have that sinful nature and they will turn against Christ. So despite the perfect environment, despite increased longevity, despite the end of abortion, the end of childhood diseases, the great economic prosperity of the kingdom, the world is not saved. And with all those conditions, the population of the world flourishes, but it is a world that is filled with people who don't know that king who sits on the throne in Jerusalem. And so after a thousand years, that part of Christ's kingdom is going to cease, the earth has to be destroyed, the curse of sin must be gone forever, and that's when Satan is loose from the abyss, and the kingdom period is marked by the time that he is there. Now, at the end of the millennium, Christ, or rather, Satan is going to come out. And by the time that we get to the end of chapter 20, the millennium is over, Satan is gone, time is gone, and now we're into eternity. Now, before we took the break at Christmas to talk about the millennial kingdom, we were in point number four of our outline, which is Satan's destruction. And his destruction has two phases. The first is his imprisonment in the abyss, And the abyss is just a temporary place. It lasts only as long as the kingdom. And then we come to verse number 7, in which we see his release. Satan is released from the abyss at the end of the kingdom. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Now, perhaps you've known somebody who has been in prison. I mean, somebody besides Jorge. Uh, You've known somebody that's been in prison... Uh, maybe you've uh, watched a movie about somebody who was released from prison, and you know you see the the uh, happiness. Or there should be happiness at least that a person is released from prison because that's not supposed to be a, a place that's pleasant to be. Prison is not supposed to be a vacation, and it's intended. Prison, of course, would be intended to, to bring a dishonorable blight upon the character. And so, when a person gets out of prison, he's happy to be out. And hopefully he'll, he'll never go back to any kind of a crime or not do any crime that would put him back into prison again. But unfortunately, that's not the way it is with many prisoners. The recidivism rate for violent crimes is somewhere around 70%. And that tells you that there are many of these people that are in prison for violent crimes that ought to be given the needle rather than parole. But that's my opinion. But did you know this, that recidivism is actually Satan's character? And when he's released from prison, he has no thoughts of turning from his evil. And he never thinks, you know, I better keep my nose clean. I better be very careful about this because God will put me back into that place again. Satan never thinks that way. Satan is an habitual offender. And getting out of prison only does one thing for him. It gives him another opportunity to defy God. It is impossible for the devil to stop sinning. Now, for 1,000 years, he'll be in the abyss, and he won't be sitting there just uh, having a good time. He won't be playing shuffleboard with the rest of the people there, and he's not going to be uh, shooting hoops with the guys. This is a time of terrible torment. It is a time of pain for him. It's a time when he is punished for what he's done, and when he gets out of that place, he's going to be thinking of one thing, 
How am I going to get even when I get out? Now his attitude about God hasn't changed. He's not better because he's seen the error of his ways. There is no redemption for the devil. Neither would he seek it if there was. He is unholy. And there is no amount of time that the devil will spend in hell that it will change him from what he is. Now during the time in the abyss, Satan's rage escalates. Nothing can describe his anger against God. If it was possible for him to hate God more, he hates God more. And we see what, he, what happens to him. Uh, back in chapter 12 of Revelation, there he was cast down to the earth. God shut him out of heaven. And the Bible says that he came to this earth with great rage. And so now, in the abyss for 1,000 years, he plots and he schemes, waiting for the moment of relief and he's chomping at the bit to release that pent-up anger that he has against God. Now, you would think that after all that time that Satan would see the handwriting on the wall, that he would see that there's no way that he can win, that the abyss is just a small sampling of what God can do to him, but he doesn't see it. He's a master deceiver. The greatest deception that he has is his own. Now, he knows the Bible. He can read that. He can see that he's walking the path of fulfilled Scripture. All of this is right here in the Word of God. And yet he still believes there is going to be a different outcome from what God says. So he doesn't try to make peace with God. He doesn't think about making peace with God. He thinks of more ways that he can defy him. And you might also note this that there is no amount of time in hell that will ever change a person. Hell only intensifies hatred of God. Not one person in hell is ready to repent. Now, if you ask, why does hell have to be forever? There are several reasons for that, but this is one of them. Nobody in hell will ever repent. After a million years in hell, nobody is ready to repent and turn to God. You ever notice this in the story of, of Lazarus and the rich man? That the rich man lifted up his eyes and he saw uh, Father Abraham. He saw Lazarus in his bosom. He saw Lazarus in glory. And he asked that Father Abraham would send Lazarus to just dip his tip of his uh, finger in, in water or touch the tip of his tongue in order to relieve some of the suffering that he had there in hell. But did he ever once say, God, I deserve to be here. God, I know that you've done this to me justly. God, I know that I've broken your law. I repent of all the evil that I've ever done. Not once does the rich man do that, but still he's concerned about self. He's thinking about self. He says, leave me from, from some of my suffering rather than dealing with the reason that he's there. So there's no repentance, there's no contrition, there's no confession of unworthiness, there's no pleading the righteousness of Christ. Because without God, who grants repentance, no one ever changes. And you won't do it, and God doesn't give it to anybody because they deserve it. I can tell you that, that God is no mood, in no mood, to give repentance to Satan or to any of his followers. So Satan has all of this time to think about defying God again. So how does he do it? Well, we've seen it time and time before. You can count on this. That whenever Satan attacks God, men are in the middle. Whenever Satan attacks God, men are always in the middle of that confrontation. You go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam stood in the middle between God and Satan. And the arguments that God had with Satan, Job was in the middle. When Satan is cast down there in Revelation chapter 12, what does the Bible say? 
Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Because they're caught in the middle, between the conf- in the confrontation between God and Satan. And now you can see it here. It's also going to happen in the millennium that when Satan is released from the abyss, men are in the middle again and they are willing participants. The next thing that we need to look at is Satan's reception. How does the world receive Satan when he comes out of the abyss? And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, for the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Now let's think about the difficulties of the statements that are made here. Let's think about the character of the Lord's kingdom. For 1,000 years, the world has lived in peace. For all of that time, the earth yielded plentiful harvest. There is no starvation. Bellies in the Sudan are filled. No one ever needed to lock a door at night. It was as safe at 2 a.m. as it is in the brightness of noon. For 1,000 years, there is perfect justice on the earth. And here's a really good part about it, too. Grandma and Grandpa will get to live to see their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. You know, it's not often that we get to see that today, to see a, a, a parent that sees his children, his great-grandchildren, his, his great-great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, on and on and on. You don't see that today, but that's the kind of thing that you will see in the millennium. The millennium's going to be a great place. Nobody commits suicide. There's no depression there. There's no financial crisis. There's no sickness. There is no Obama. It's a really great place when you get to the millennium. Why is this? Why is that? Because Satan is gone. And when Christ rules in righteousness, it dispels sin. Sin is not there. Sin is locked down, as we've said before. And so it's a great place to live. But then you look what happens here. Satan steps out of the darkness of his prison. He steps into the sunshine of the happiness of God's kingdom. He comes out into a a perfect climate. Climate changes happen, but it's all good here. And he steps out into a very different world from the one that he left. And he comes out with a proposal that he's going to overthrow it all. And what do you think that people will think of such of an appro- a proposal? What will they say? He wants to get rid of it all? And, and, and they would say, that's preposterous. Who would ever think of such a thing? Who would want to go back to living like it was in Satan ki- Satan's kingdom? What are they going to think when Satan returns? All they know is history. They know what the world was like when he ruled things. So what are they going to think? Oh, that's the best thing for us. Uh, that, that's what needs to be done. There's no way that we'd ever want to go back to living under Satan's rule again. Now, who would ever think of reversing the glorious kingdom of Christ and going back to live under the strife of Satan's kingdom? They would never want that. Or would they? Now, I certainly assume that they have history books. Education is going to be a big thing in the kingdom. Knowledge will increase. Certainly we know this, that nobody's going to know less than what we know now. The Lord will increase. The knowledge of the Lord will increase, as Habakkuk said, as waters that cover the sea. And so these children that are born in the millennium, they have the Bible. They're able to read what happened under the reign of the Antichrist. And they can consider all of that. They can think about that. They can see what life is like in God's kingdom. They can see tribulation versus millennium. 
And they'll say, what should we choose? And we would say, no way that they want to go back to the way it was before. That's what we expect. But what do we get? This is what we get. Deception, misdirection, craftiness, the delusion of the devil. So what's their reaction? Well, you're about to see how masterful that Satan is with his wiles. No one was better suited for this occupation than Satan. What does our text in Ephesians say? It said, put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. In 2 Timothy 2, verses 25 and 26, Paul said that people oppose themselves, and they're taken captive by Satan at his will. In Ephesians 6, verses 13 to 18, there Paul lists the weapons of Christian warfare, and he said, you must put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of the gospel and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, and you must wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He says you have to take all of that, you have to get all of that, you have to use that, because that is for the protection of Christians. Well, the lost man without Christ, he has none of those. He has no breastplate, he has no boots, he has no shield, he has no helmet, there is no sword for him. So what is he going to do against the wiles of the devil? All of those things are necessary to keep Satan at bay. And so when Satan comes to deceive, what's a lost man going to do against him? What's his protection against Satan? Well, the short answer is he doesn't have any. And so Satan comes out of his prison and he comes with another plan. And what happens? There is no defense against his temptation. These people still have the old nature, and as soon as Satan comes calling, they're ready to go with him. Why do they do it? Because they're sinners. Sinners sin, don't they? 1,000 years living next to the throne of God doesn't change them. Now, why did Christ have to rule with a rod of iron? Because they're sinners. They sin. They oppose themselves. They, they don't do what's good for them. So what's the point? What is it the Bible is trying to say to us here? I don't think that we have to be theological whiz kids to figure this one out. But let me tell you, just in case you don't know. What is the Bible trying to tell us in this? Well, let me tell you, and we'll end today on this theological point, a very crucial theological point. This teaches the doctrine of man's total inability. Most people don't believe it. Most Baptists don't believe it. But here we see it in living color. You can't miss this because we're hit head on with it. Man has no ability to embrace the grace of God. Now let's break it down a little bit. Let's see how the scriptures demonstrate the doctrine of inability. Here is a perfect world. It has perfect conditions. The Son of God is there. He is visible God is there. When you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. Isn't that what Jesus told Philip? Faith is not an unseen thing then. Faith is visible. God is there. It's a visual kingdom. It is a physical kingdom with a magnificent temple, and the glory of God is enveloped in the whole earth. The prayer, thy kingdom come, has happened. It's happened. It's realized. And so the brightness of God's glory emanates from the temple in the capital of Jerusalem, and the conditions on earth are far better than anything the world has ever seen, certainly far better than they are now. No one is going to dispute how good that it is to live under King Jesus. 
And yet with all of that, in a very short time, Satan brainwashes the world and turns them all against Christ. And I mean all of them. And what do they do? They march against the holy city. Now the scripture says, from the four corners of the earth, that means the entire earth turns against Jesus Christ at the deception of Satan. So they march on the holy city and they reject Christ worse than it was the first time that he came. And you say, well, how can it be worse than that? Well, it's worse because when he came the first time, he was not a king that sat on a throne. Oh, he promised that he would be, but he didn't bring the kingdom in then. And it's worse because then he wasn't rich, but now he is rich. And all the rest of the world is rich because of the prosperity of the kingdom. At first, he didn't end the rule of Rome. But now he's ended the opposition of all kingdoms of the earth, and he rules everything. The first time they crucified him, even though there wasn't any sin in him, they had all the visual proof that they needed that he was the Lord, but they killed him anyway. Shouts of Hosanna at the first of the, of the Passion Week turned into crucify him at the end of the week. But this world is a very much different world. Here, it's all visual. Here, it's real. Here, they see it. They can touch it. They live in it. The things that were veiled in shadows before, these have become the vibrant reality of the day. There is the king sitting on his throne, showering his manifold blessings over the whole world. But they don't want it. If they could, they would crucify him again. They despise his rule. And it's for one reason. They love sin more than they love God. Do you see how foolish it is for people who say, you know, if we just had good government, if we could just elect all Christians, if we could just have the freedom to preach the gospel in a, in a, in a better way, if we could just have everybody as Christians that are in power, then millions of people would come to Christ. But isn't that a description of the millennial kingdom? That's exactly what it is in the millennial kingdom. All of those things... The conditions are perfect for people to come to Christ. And it's not Christians only that reign. It is Jesus Christ himself that reigns on the earth. So you can pass all the laws that you want. You can put Christians into every office, into every government position, make it possible that you can't put your shoes on without saying a prayer. And it won't change a person's heart. That has no effect on the human heart. People that think like this, they don't understand the real problem that's going on here, and their theology, or theology reflects that. They don't understand the total depravity and the total inability of man. So they believe that if you can make the carrot juicy enough, that if you can make the gospel attractive enough, then people will come to Christ. Just make it good enough for them to come. And they don't understand the real problem is the human heart. The heart won't allow it. The nature does not allow it. The heart stops us from coming to Christ. The heart just will not do it. And on top of that, you have Satan working against you in the supernatural world. Clever schemes with the gospel and a million verses of just as I am at the end of a sermon is not going to change this. It's not going to outwit Satan. Well, I've seen every form of trickery there is to get people down aisles. I've seen manipulation. I've heard the tear-jerking stories. I've seen the sneak-up-on-them sneak trick. The multiple, multiple, multiple verses of invitation with all the stories that are told in between. And preachers think that their persuasion is greater than the depravity of the human heart. And Satan's hold over the heart. That's utter foolishness. That's failure in theology. It's failure to understand 
what happened to man in the fall. Now you just take a look at the two greatest failures in, uh, of man in all of the world. One of them is at the beginning of time, and the other one is at the end of time. Now we're at the end, so let's start with it. It's the millennial kingdom. The environment is perfect. The government is perfect. The Bible is taught everywhere. All information is there because the Bible is the textbook in every class. Every classroom has the Ten Commandments and every court has the Ten Commandments back up on the wall where it belongs. But then Satan is loosed. And I hate to say it this way, but all hell breaks loose. All hell breaks loose and Satan rides the crest of it and all of his demons are out, and people are standing in line. Sign me up for your army. I will fight with you. Take me too. I am game to overthrow Jesus Christ. Why do they do it? It's the age-old problem of the human heart. The heart rules them. They have sinful natures. Conditions won't help them. No matter how conditions improve, it doesn't help them. They still have the nature. They still love to sin. Men love darkness rather than light. Isn't that what the Bible says? We love darkness rather than light. And the Bible is true, and it will not change no matter how much preachers say that it will. And then guess what? Do we actually need the millennial kingdom to tell us that serving God is better? Serving Christ is better than not serving Him? Well, the Bible says we've already got enough information to tell us that. We ought to obey God. Romans chapter 1 says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now in that time, the world is going to have far more information than we have now. And with all this information, it's not enough to stave off the depravity of the human heart and fight the wiles of the devil. Well, that's what we see at the end. A world that's filled with righteousness. We have all the evidence. We have all the evidence of it. The world is filled with righteousness, but all of that righteousness is exterior to the human heart. All the environment. It's overwhelmingly conducive to perfect trust in God. Who's the ruler then? God rules. There is no human government. The perfect government of God is what rules. But there's another advantage that we see on the other end of this story. On the other end, we have a different story. We have other advantages that are not present in the millennial kingdom. In the kingdom at the beginning of the Bible, there is no sin at all. Sin has not yet entered. Adam and Eve were, are without a sinful nature. They're created in innocence. Eve is taken out of Adam. She has no sinful nature. They're both innocent. No sin in them. But what happened? With perfect environment, with perfect rule, without a sinful nature, Adam and Eve chose to sin. And you ask, well, how did that happen? Well... You know this thing called free will that everybody insists on? Adam had it. Adam truly had it. He had free will. He was created as a changeable being. 
He was without a sin nature, but he, and he could make a free, unencumbered choice to sin or not to sin. And what did Adam do? He sinned. No sinful nature, free will to do anything he wants to do. He sinned. Let me ask you, did man somehow improve from the incident in the garden? Is there now a new faculty in man that makes him choose God over sin? We know better than that, don't we? Because in a few generations, the world had become so wicked that God decided to destroy all men with a flood. He said their hearts are wicked continually. They only do evil continually. And so do we expect now that with a sinful nature, and with hearts hardened against God, that we are going to choose better than Adam did in his innocence? Are we going to choose Christ? Can I give you a sermon on the gospel and change you? Can I overcome your sinful, depraved heart? Can I hold Satan at bay for just a little while while you make a decision about this? You just decide which way are you going to go. I'll hold Satan back while you make that decision. Now what's the point? It's to show you man's inability. It's to show you that you cannot respond to the gospel unless God has already changed your heart to receive it. And once we get that very basic fact, when we understand the evidence that's presented, we have just established the doctrines of God's sovereign grace. Everything falls into place when you get this. And if you understand this critical point, you're not going to find yourself arguing against God and the perspicuity of Scripture. You'll not fail in your theological or fall into theological holes. Now those who don't believe the doctrines of grace find themselves on the horns of a dilemma. That dilemma is the inability of man. And you can't see it any clearer than what we read in Revelation 20, verses 7 and 8. So Satan is released from the abyss. He comes forth in the adeptness of his deception with a rage that's greater than ever before, and he plies the human heart with great success. The people that are born into the kingdom do not have changed hearts. They're living with a depraved human nature, which means they're ripe for the picking. And so Satan has his way. Do you understand, folks? This is why that we teach that salvation from the beginning to the end must be of God. Ephesians tells us that our faith must be given by God. Acts tells us that repentance must be granted by God. You don't come to Christ because you're a good thinker. You don't come to him because you are, are, are smarter than other people who don't. You don't come because you're capable of weighing the evidence to see which is good and which is not, and then choose the right way to go. You come for only one reason. The Father draws you to him. His effectual grace and his everlasting cords of love bring you to him. And what God does is he pins your arms of resistance to your side by hugging you with your, his love, and then he loosens the chains of sin from you until they fall off, and then you come willingly to Christ. As Charles Wesley wrote in his great hymn, My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I love that song. I love it because it says it so well that the first thing that must happen is the chains of sin have to fall off. 
If God did not conquer sin in you in every way, you would do what Adam did. And you'll do what all people in the millennium do. You will not choose God over Satan. You'll always go with Satan. And when you understand this, you'll never again speak of how you found God. You didn't find God. You'll never say again, God left me alone with only my will and I chose Him. No, what you'll say is glory to God in the highest because of the good pleasure of His will, He chose me. Salvation is all of the Lord. And my friends, that is the gospel of God's grace. He did for you what you could never do for yourself. He did for you what you could never do for yourself. He chose you because you would not choose Him. Thank the Lord for His mercy and His grace. Thank Him for what He did. Exalt His name forever and praise Him forever because salvation is found completely, wholly in Him. Praise His name for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the message from Your Word. Lord, You teach us such profound truth. If we just take time to look and see what You're saying to us, we see, Lord, that we have no hope without Jesus Christ. We can't come without you. Uh, our hearts are depraved. The sinful nature holds us down. We can't do anything about it. Only you and your marvelous grace can bring, you, bring us to you. And Lord, we know that you've designed it that way so that you would receive all of the glory for it, that we can never look at ourselves and boast because of it. Even as Paul said, we just cannot boast that salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. Our faith is given by God. Repentance is given by God. The calling, the effectual calling is made by God. Everything that's in salvation comes from you. And help us to realize this, Lord, that we must give up on ourselves and throw ourselves at the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, to open our hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ and cause us to understand and to believe. Lord, we ask you for that. And we know that it's a prayer that's asked in sincerity that that is what you do, that you will save anyone who comes to you with a contrite heart, asking to be saved from their sins. You'll save anyone who will do that. Lord, we just pray for it today. Bless us. Bless our people here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know what I love so much about the gospel of grace? That I'm never left with thinking, what can I do next? How, how can I be good enough? How, how, what, what's the next thing that I have to do to be pleasing to God to get Him to love me? What, what is the next thing that, that God requires of me? I love the gospel of grace because it says, God says, you don't have to do anything. I've done it all for you. I've taken care of everything for you. And then he says, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All that I need to bring to Christ is my burden of sin. I just need to come and give him the burden of sin, and he'll take that away. His, God, his grace promises that, and he doesn't say that you have to do anything. He's taken care of all of it for you. That's why I love the gospel of grace. I know that God saved me when I was undeserving. I, I, he saved me when I wasn't looking for him. He, I couldn't look for him. My eyes were blinded by Satan, and there was no way that I could understand the gospel of Christ. Not until the Holy Spirit opened up my heart to see it, to understand it, and then come to Christ because he drew me to him. And that's the way he works in every person that's saved. He draws us to salvation 
we can't do anything to bring ourselves to him. I hope that you see that today. If the grace of God hasn't, if you haven't realized it today, all you, that you, you just need to ask God for his mercy. Ask him for his grace. And he always promises that he'll give it to you. So this tells us that salvation is all of the Lord. He does everything. I don't, I, I, there's nothing I can do to help him with this. He has provided it for me and he does it all for me. That, that's what I want to believe about God. So I hope that you understand that today. I hope that you'll come to him today if you don't know him as Lord and Savior. Let's sing another verse of our song. If God speaks to your heart, we invite you. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org